This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's so easy to just think, yeah, that's just bad. It's just bad. No, it's science. It's advancement. It's progress. Well, yeah, but they're just destroying the earth. I'd love to get somebody that just is against fracking to to sit down with a guy like Dr. Morris and explain why. Well, there's earthquakes. Okay, do, why are the earthquakes happening? Because you're pumping water into the ground. Okay, explain it. So we have this tendency to have an opinion without a lot of information. And to have an opinion is great, I guess, but to have no information, you know, it's kind of a pretty empty opinion. So one of the things we might want to do is formulate your opinion with information and with education and not just information and education that comes from the one side that you love, the pro-oil or the anti-oil people, the environmentalists, but just learn. Did you know that you can drill horizontally? And did you know you can drill horizontally for a mile and a half? Do you remember when those guys were caught in the Chilean mine? They were drilling, you know, diagonally. That is pretty cool. You can drill at any angle. That's great. Someday that'll pay off when you're stuck in a mine, right? Anyway, let's just get informed. That's one of the big reasons we want to do the show is just give you more information. You can always, you know, hate fracking. Or you can also just understand that that fracking wasn't just destroying Mother Earth. It was also employing a lot of people. And it was finally creating security for some some families that didn't have it. Well, yeah, but it was also making a bunch of oil companies rich. Sure, okay, sure. And can we do it better? Absolutely. But it's there's there's this this give and take as we just learned between the costs and and you know, the benefit. And sometimes it costs money to have oil. And the mere fact that in the United States we're sitting on so much oil shell, oil shell that for years we have never been able to access the oil in the shell. Yet we're sitting on so much of it, and yet we're so dependent on fuel historically from other places, even to the point that wars were maybe started. You know, I guess a little fracking and learning about it, it's helpful. It's probably, we were probably fairly blessed to all have landed on this country with so much oil and shell. Doesn't mean we need to exploit the earth, and it doesn't mean we need to hate the companies that are providing it for us. Make sense? It just seems like a more moderate view. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. If we are going to take on the idea that 70% of the workforce in the United States is disengaged, there's obviously something that uh, is not working right, right? So we have to figure out what that is, and I guess I could just go in and coach a company or work with a company to figure out what's going on with their people, or we could just, on the radio, try to help you figure out what's going on with you. What is it that's driving you or not driving you? 
And obviously, in Nikki's case, where she talks her boss from a 40-hour work week down to a 32-hour work week, took a little pay cut. But in the end, I think what she also did is she ended up basically – she knew what she was into. She knew what her driver was. She knew what moved her and what pushed her along. And I worry that many of us don't have a clue. We don't have a clue what our drivers are. So here's a little activity that I want you to to just kind of walk through with you and I want you to think about. Think of a situation when you feel that you are at your very, very best. Think of like a scenario where you uh, you have got your game on and you're nailing it, right? So as you think about it, who are the people that you're with in that situation? Are the people – is it kind of people-centric where it's the people you're with that make it so valuable and incredible? Or what are you doing in the situation? Are you at work? Are you performing a leadership function? Are you – you know, what are you doing? And what emotions are you feeling as you are doing this activity? It's a very basic thing. What may, where are you at your very best? Well, I'm in front of the TV watching myself some Matlock and eating some Cheetos. Okay. All right. Let's dig a little deeper then. Because <laughs> if that is your ultimate goal – is just to get away from work and life so you can get to TV to watch your Netflix binge, um, then we might be missing something, right? We might be basically missing what your driver is. Maybe your driver is to no longer be in the stressful workplace. But there's a reason why when people retire, their likelihood of uh, living longer starts to decrease and their ability to be healthier even decreases. We would think just being free from work would make us healthier, but that's not always the case. So we've got to figure out what the drivers are. Are the drivers the people around you? Are the drivers your opportunity to be creative and imaginative and inventive? Is it just being more optimistic? Sometimes work might be a difficult place for you because the people around you aren't optimistic. It's so doom and gloom, so negative. Maybe one of your drivers is to have just more playfulness or have a a more spiritual connection to something, and you're not getting that at work. So you've got to figure out what it is that moves you. And as you look through the people that you're with and the activities you're doing – what are what's specific about the activities? What drives that activity to be so valuable to you? What is it that you are doing in that activity? Are you more creative? Are you more in a leadership role? Are you more um, you know with people and engaging other people? Because whatever you're doing, it's telling something about you, right? It's telling you that I need to go be I need to go be with people more. And I sit too much in my cubicle and this job is great, but it's not – I'm not where I need to be. Because if we can discern what the drivers are, for example, about being with people, then we could actually take what you do every day and start to say, how can I now engage more people at my work? It might simply be you're in a rut. You're in a habit of not talking to people in your office because you you move from cells to – customer support and you spend so much time on the phone talking to people that are angry that you never get to talk to the people around you. 
that might be why it's valuable to cut eight hours out of your workday so you don't have to do that as much. Or you've got to figure out a way to engage people. Maybe start taking lunches with the people around you. Um, once you kind of know the people driver and the the uh, action or the pattern driver. For example, I'm noticing and it took a year and a half probably to get used to it. But the early schedule of the show is just hard for me. I don't think I don't think our creator wants us up this early to do this show. Creator as in Don Schlein or God? Yeah, Don Schlein. Okay. No, the real creator. And he doesn't want us up this early. Don wants us up. But it's hard it's a hard thing for me. And but then I thought, well, what did I used to do during this time? And it was just sleeping. <laughs> Wasted time. But man, it allows me to do what I love to do and it allows me to be with people that are great and it allows me to engage my emotions and my feelings in a healthier way. So it's kind of worth it, right? It's worth it. But in the end, that's a decision every one of us needs to make. What drives you? Do you feel like you're using your best gifts? How do you want to be remembered? These are all questions that you could be asking yourself. At your funeral, what would you want everyone to say about you and how you worked? What do you want your kids to say about what you contributed to in your professional life? I remember hearing at my grandfather's funeral what a great man he was. He built a company, but also how many lives he helped, how many people, how many families he took care of, of his employees that had had problems or, you know, this was back before the day where everyone was insured and in a mining company. What do you want your family to say about you and how you worked and how you changed lives? These are all questions that can help you get deeper into what drives you and what motivates you. Just go start uncovering it and see what it teaches you. And then let's see if we can't start adapting our life a little bit more to it. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You, you know, we all know that one guy in the office who will do anything to be in the spotlight. Maybe it's that guy that calls everybody else out on their productivity. Or, you know, it could be when something goes on. You remember with the lion that was killed in Africa? Everybody was so outraged by it. And, or any issue. It could be, it could be what's going on with the Trump rallies. There's, there's something that happens when... People show moral outrage. You know, they get a little blurry sometimes. Why are they doing it? Are they doing it to promote their own issues? Are they doing it to look good? Are they doing it simply because they can't believe what's happening? Well, our next guest uh, joining us from Hartford, Connecticut, is Jillian Jordan. She's a Ph.D. candidate uh, in psychology at Yale University. And she recently wrote an article on Psychology Today, Evolution of Moral Outrage, I'll Punish Your Bad Behavior to Make Me Look Good, discusses the theory behind human morality and our motivations, uh, you know, in our drive for success. So we're so excited to have you. Jillian Jordan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. PhD candidate, you're almost there. You're almost there. <laughs> Hang on, Jillian. <laughs> good, to, good to have you here. So talk to us about, uh, first of all, how did you 
How did you find this topic of uh, and, and get into the topic of the evolution of moral outrage? Um, well, I think that it's a really pervasive part of society around us that I find really interesting. So, yeah, you gave a bunch of great anecdotes of this kind of moral outrage. And I think that, you know, we see a lot of moral progress being driven by people's outrage. So, you know, I think whatever your personal politics are, it seems like when people achieve achieve progress, for example, making the, the Supreme Court making gay marriage legal or something, it's often pushed by a lot of people feeling really outraged about what they perceive to be wrongdoing. And, right. Um, so I think this is clearly a really important part of society, and it's a really important part of, like, sort of what makes humans special. Like, there's not a lot of evidence that other animals really care when um, people besides themselves have been harmed. And mm. so um, I, I find that to be really interesting. And what we do in my research group is we sort of think about from the perspective of evolution and rational self-interest, which are sort of thought to be these selfish processes, like how is it possible that people do things that appear to be altruistic at face value, like paying personal costs to be a whistleblower or a protester or um, sort of risk alienating other people when you criticize them in the fight for moral progress. So Mm. um, that's sort of how we came to this topic. It's an interesting topic. I mean, the idea, too, just of being a whistleblower, right? I mean, you're putting yourself out on the line, but you just can't take it anymore, is – I mean, I guess to me there's a difference between moral outrage maybe at its at the inception of the event or the topic and then the ones that eventually just stay outraged for the next 20 years fighting a That's movement, true, yeah. you know? I mean, yeah, definitely. So but some people invest a lot more. <laughs> talk, to me, talk to us about what you're learning about about what uh, what generates moral outrage. I mean, I'm, if it's an evolutionary uh, process, then it must have been some benefit – I would assume to to show moral outrage, right. or or they, it would never have happened. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, um, our research is sort of interested in one particular benefit uh, to moral outrage, which is the idea that if you condemn and punish misbehavior, you're sort of able to broadcast and advertise to observers that you yourself wouldn't engage in that immoral behavior, and mm. that sort of makes them more likely to trust you. Um, not not to sort of screw them over. And so yeah. they're willing to invest in relationships with you and it can kind of pay off in the long run, even if in the short run you um, sort of risk a lot of things uh, for doing the condemnation and punishment. It's interesting because it's almost, it seems like a very political move, right? So you're, you're risking a little bit, uh, but you right. also are supposedly, you know, engendering trust. Right, definitely. I mean, I think that um, that happens all the time, like in human social behavior. I mean, I think we're talking about one example of that with condemning and punishing moral wrongdoing. But I mean, that's also sort of how many evolutionary scientists think about why we do all sorts of nice acts. So, you know, you do a favor for your friend, you help them move, you um, help them with their schoolwork. And in the short term, it's sort of a drain on your time or resources or effort, but in the long run, they sort of are likely to help you. And this mm. is the sort of same theory, but applied to um, condemning and punishing wrongdoing as opposed to helping others. Right. And, and I guess, is it that is it that conscientious? Is that what you learned, is that we are kind of, we're consciously uh, 
you know, doing this act today to get payment of benefit tomorrow versus no, definitely I mean, not. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I guess it's more yeah, gut so feel. I don't think we make to we mean to make any claims whatsoever about the extent to which this behavior is conscious, um, because our research methods didn't really allow us to test that. Um, my intuition, just from being a person in the world, is like I definitely don't think this is typically conscious. I think most of the time people are really genuinely outraged. Um, their conscious experience is one of anger that something wrong has happened, mm. but if you consider, like, why we would come to feel anger, then that's where I think our theory comes in. It sort of helps explain why individuals who have this reaction of anger might sort of gain some long-run social advantage. Yeah. So is it uh, – you studied it more, I guess, in corporate life. Is that how you went about uh, people, like, people um, calling no, out? Actually, the example that I just used to illustrate the idea in the article you read, yeah. but – in terms of our actual research methods, we had a very abstract and sort of non-context-specific method, which was we had people play these economic games online with strangers, which are basically they make decisions about how to divide money. Mm. And so when we look at you know punishing misbehavior, what, what we have is a situation where one person gets some money, and they have the chance to share that money with somebody else who didn't start off with anything. And, you know, a lot of people share with some people don't. And then we ask a third person, if the person decided not to share, to selfishly keep all the money for themselves, are you willing to give up some of your own money to cause them to lose their money? Hmm. So our punishment decision is like, you know, giving up some of the money that you got in the experiment to make someone selfish lose the money they got in the experiment. <laughs> um, and what we do is we just, like, have now a totally new person who wasn't at all involved in the interaction I just described decide how trustworthy they think the person is who may or may not have punished. Um, and our basic result is they're sort of more willing to invest money in them with the assumption that they'll be willing to return that money if the person... Punish, suggesting that they infer that people who punish are sort of fair-minded and trustworthy. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And, um, yeah, definitely. And, and, and what I guess in the end, it, it's, a, it's kind of a natural process, and, and we don't – when we don't sense somebody did something fair, it, it, it angers us in some degree to mm-hmm. even want to spend money to stop them. Exactly, yeah, which is, I mean, that's not our result. That's actually, people have been using the sort of first game I described for um, a couple decades in this field, and they consistently find that. They find, you know, across cultures, across contexts, when people play this game, they're willing to give up some of their own money to make selfish people lose their money, which I think is really cool. Huh. And by doing that, I guess uh, one of the things in the article um, talks about, uh, it's it ends up signaling by by my act of um, I guess payment to stop a, a, a misdoer, it ends up signaling to others that I guess I have a moral advantage, that I'm morally exactly, stronger. Yeah. Right, and so they they assume you know you will be fair to them, you wouldn't refuse to share, and so it's worth investing in a personal relationship with you because you're likely to be morally good. It's interesting too, and I guess too what it says on a social level is. That it I, it would it would benefit society as we are punitive and punishing of those that aren't moral. Yeah, 
so, so everybody's um, on board. Like, yeah, let's 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 put <laughs> down the the the, the misdoer. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that for the most part, it's a really good thing for society when, um, you know, misbehavior gets punished because in the same way that, you know, the criminal justice system and legal punishment deters people from committing crime, I think the fear of social repercussions deters people from being selfish. So, I mean, you can imagine a situation where someone gets gets asked to give, you know, a, a colleague a ride to the airport or something, and they don't really want to do it because it takes a bunch of their time. But they know, you know, if everyone knows they refuse to do it, people are going to judge them negatively. They're going to refer to them as selfish hmm. or condemn them. And, like, this is going to have reputational repercussions for them. And so they're sort of deterred by that punishment. And they're like, okay, I'll, I'll agree to drive this person to the airport. So I think um, it definitely promotes good behavior in society if people know that if they behave badly, they will be punished. And yeah being punished will be, you know, costly to them. Um, that said, I think that, like, you can get interesting cases where you get sort of an overreaction to um, a seemingly minor transgression. If every individual wants to sort of be on the record condemning or punishing that transgression for the purpose of communicating to their friends and acquaintances that they are morally good, they're trustworthy, they wouldn't have done the transgression. But if every individual wants to do that, then you can kind of get an overreaction, especially when the Internet comes oh. into play, which is actually maybe, you know, more punishment than it really is optimal for society. So I think yeah. that's a sort of interesting consequence of this idea. Well, it's uh, it's totally interesting. Yeah, this is a – I guess we may be outpacing our environment moral. I mean, all of a sudden mm-hmm. we can put it out on Facebook and absolutely destroy somebody for right. – with a moral decision and a, but not even a not even know all the facts, right? And then overwhelm right. it, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow, interesting. Uh, let's take a break, Jillian. <laughs> We're speaking um, with Jillian Jordan from Yale University. She's a PhD candidate that is talking about an article she wrote called "Evolution of Moral Outrage." I'll punish your bad behavior to make me look good. There are extremes, aren't there? And uh, you may be seeing some of this going on in our political world today believe it or not you know you may have a moral outrage against one of the candidates and spreading it sharing it and and creating maybe an unbalanced view of things we'll take a break come back continue our discussion with jillian jordan stick with us folks this is the matt townsend show Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting subject today. We're talking about uh, the evolution of moral outrage. People benefit by being, you know, really strong about a moral issue. You know, how many times on YouTube, on um, how many times on Facebook, on Instagram, have you seen just some post that people just blow up? I can't believe you said that. And everyone jumps on board. Uh, Joining us now is a researcher, Jillian Jordan, um, who is a Ph.D. candidate at Yale University in the Department of Psychology. She has been studying and done a study on 
uh, The Evolution of Moral Outrage, also wrote an article on it. Uh, Jillian Jordan, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Hey, you wrote a really interesting, uh, or you were part of it, an op-ed, it looks like, in the New York Times, where you yeah. mentioned you mentioned this example of um, a woman named Justine Sacco, where mm-hmm. where people's moral outrage went a little bit too far. Tell us, just just talk about that story a little bit and why why we need to be careful of our own moral outrage. Yeah, so I mean, this is a case of I think sort of a disproportionate response that results from a lot of individuals all feeling motivated to express their moral positions. So um, the story of Justine Sacco is that she sort of wrote this uh, tweet before she went on a trip to Africa that some people interpreted as a racist comment. Um, She talked about how she was unlikely to get AIDS in Africa because she was white. Um, And other people sort of interpreted it as what she said it was, which was kind of an ironic joke about um, the sort of unfortunate disparity in yeah, the statistics outcomes. Yeah. Right. But, you know, other people thought this is just like a rude comment making light of the suffering of others. And so she posted this tweet and then she got on the flight, which was an 11-hour flight. And when she landed... It had just completely exploded. She was the number one worldwide trend on Twitter and getting all sorts of heat messages, people who are planning to, like, meet meet her at the airport to attack her when she got playing. I mean, not physically, uh, but... Yeah. Um, Protest, and, yeah. Right. Her life was, like, pretty much ruined just overnight um, after posting this tweet. And sort of whatever your perspective is on, you know, was this tweet racist, maybe you think it definitely was, Um, it seems still like this is probably an overreaction to have your sort of reputation completely destroyed on the internet with, Mm. you know, thousands and thousands of people participating in condemning you. Um, Certainly this isn't the kind of response this level of transgression would get if it just happened, you know, in daily life and Mm -hmm. was observed only by a few people who were there when she said it. Um, So I think this is sort of an example of how on the internet, when a ton of people can find out about somebody's moral transgression, then you just get a huge pool of people who all have an individual incentive to express to you know their Twitter followers or friends or acquaintances or whatever that they are not racist by condemning and punishing her behavior. Mm. And when you put that all together, you get this sort of seemingly crazy disproportionate response, um, which I think is really interesting because you know if people were punishing for the purpose of having the effect on her receiving a just sort of uh, response to her racism, like they just wanted to participate in getting justice served or whatever, then it seems like they would be very sensitive, oh, to the fact that, oh, already a lot of people have responded negatively to her. I don't need to further that. She's kind of already gotten the just punishment for what she did. But it seems like that's not really what's, at least um, unconsciously, like that's not really the incentive that people mm-hmm. are responding to. They don't have an incentive to make sure she gets a just punishment. What they have an incentive to do is to communicate to the people around them that they're trustworthy and that they're not racist yeah. and that they're morally good. And so I think that can lead to these like really crazy outcomes. Well, and it, it almost seems like we will inevitably see more and more of this where most of these people had no idea who Justine Sacco was. 
right? right. But the, she wrote the message to her friends that know her and would know. I mean, the other thing is she was going, she was going to Africa for a reason anyway. And her friends would have known. Her friends would have known her. They most of them right. would have taken it in context. And then right, I guess right. it takes one person to be offended, and then now and then others. I, I, apparently, she lost her job because yeah, of right. this. I mean. How does this – where does this end? And I mean because we see it. We see so many people that are offended for so many reasons and it seems like there there are good reasons to be offended and then there are people that are just, you know, hangers on that just want to ride the the moral train somewhere. Yeah, definitely. I think that's right. Man, does this – is there something we can do as a psychologist teach us? What, what do we do to make sure that we are not just – you know, ganging up and glomming on to people that are having a moral, you know, that are that are just on a moral, I don't know, witch hunt. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good just to think reflectively about, you know, your own moral outrage. And I mean, of course, I don't think it makes it wrong to be outraged right. to find out that, you know, perhaps it has this, um, like it from an ultimate perspective, it sort of exists to benefit your reputation. I mean, I think, you know, the exact same thing can be said for why you help your friends. Like, from an ultimate perspective, this exists so you'll have a good reputation and your friends will help you in exchange. And, like, so Mm -hmm. in some ways this can be thought of as selfish. And, like, of course I wouldn't say, so that means it's bad to help your friends. Like, and, you know, by analogy, I don't think it's bad to express moral outrage, even though it may exist in part as a form of personal advertisement because, you know, I think this is, an important part of who we are as humans. Is, and as I said, I think it typically has a lot of positive consequences for society. So, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think what would be good is to sort of think reflectively about, you know, in a particular case, like, um, is my outrage going to do more good or more bad for the world? And like, perhaps in certain cases where there's already been a huge response and, you know, perhaps the intentions behind the transgression actually aren't that clear. Um, you know, maybe maybe it really wasn't that that bad, but it was. It's clear that it's perceived by some people to be bad, and you know, you can jump on this movement to um, punish someone. But you know, upon reflection, perhaps that's not necessarily right. appropriate given what's already happened. And I think it's good to be reflective about that kind of thing, um, and to just kind of think about you know, where your outrage is coming from and if you think it's actually going to do good for whatever do, goals you have. Do you sense, it seems like to me, it could backfire too. If if you're the person, you know, you're the friend that's morally outraged about everything. And mm-hmm. I mean, if, if anybody sees you as too extreme where yeah. everything becomes a moral outrage, uh, it seems like it would backfire and you'd lose trust with people. That's true. Yeah, definitely. And so I think that... Um, you know, for the most part, people are, are quite good at doing these types of trade-off calculations. Like, yeah. if I don't seem outraged at all, then people will think, you know, I don't I don't care about these issues, and then that makes me less trustworthy. But also, if I get too angry and belligerent about everything, then people will sort of want to just stay away from me because I seem too judgmental or unstable or unforgiving. And so, you know, I mean, of course, nobody's perfect at balancing their social behavior, Um to sort of appear optimal to others. But I think, you know, people are implicitly aware of the type of trade-off I'm describing. Mm. No, totally. Um, 
Well, and yeah. I, I think it's fascinating what we're finding out about humans and human behavior that it's not just an inherent moral outrage. Sometimes it's payday too, right? You get to elevate yourself while being outraged. And I guess sometimes it is right. just – you just – we have compassion. I mean that's part of being human too and the compassion may make this even more outrageous for us. Definitely. That's powerful. Well, we appreciate you. Jillian Jordan, uh, when are you done with your Ph.D.? When do you defend your dissertation and everything? Um, I have two more years after this one. Oh, Jillian, come on. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> two more years. You're almost there. Well, we appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for your yeah, great no work. And uh, keep helping us understand human behavior. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Good luck. Jillian Jordan from Yale University. Two more years can you imagine of uh, this has got to be hard work? Wow. The moral human, right? We, we're we mad. We can't take it. And you see it. We see it going on with Trump. But a lot of people, remember, get a high just being anti-Trump. They get a little moral push, a little moral pick-me-up simply because they're against somebody. But remember, too, there are a lot of people that are outraged because of the immorality of others, which might be some of the backers of Trump as well. It's a crazy world we live in, right? Where you can show anger and frustration, and it still might help you advance morally, in the eyes of others at least. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, uh, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, interesting subject, isn't it? When you talk about morality, ah, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, its and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we, there's a thing called logical force. Okay. So logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, Okay, and um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right, because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her because that was totally rude. The problem is even if it's, even if it's logical for you to be mad – even if it's uh, – and you can see this in our political world. Even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down 
for you to destroy someone's career or, you know, credibility, it, just because it is logical and it, it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system, don't always, they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are. Or you could just shut your flapper and go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. <laughs> Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad? So I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden – it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do is just take the – I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, 12 or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical, but he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right, and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons. This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what, does, what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. We'll take a break. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We can't do the show without you. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Many times your spouse, they may seem a little critical, but they also may just be trying to give you uh, some some ideas, some creative criticism, maybe it's anything to get you to try something different, to do something different. And so today I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how do you take criticism from your spouse? And uh, many would be like, well, I shouldn't have to. Well, you shouldn't have to. But um, uh, it may not, it may be that they simply don't know how to frame it in in any other way other than it sounding critical. Or it might be, honestly, that you are just kind of sensitive to feedback, especially accurate feedback. I know many times uh, I I just wish people would just not give me feedback. Except deep down, I also know you need the feedback, right? So um, remember, uh, I'm going to give you just some rules that I've learned as I uh, work with people, as I get feedback myself, as I'm in my own relationships uh, generally, if you kind of um, recognize one simple rule about f- feedback or criticism is that all criticism is more of a reflection of the person giving the criticism than it is of you, right? So, um, you know, some people might nitpick certain things. Others might nitpick other things. And if you notice the feedback you're getting, many times it's very much customized to what the needs are, the ideas are what what one person feels is appropriate or not appropriate. So it, it's not something you necessarily need to be offended by. It's not something you necessarily need to take um, any serious offense by. So I guess recognize where the criticism is coming from. Recognize that, you know, if they're, if they're critiquing how much money you make, you know, there's probably a history here of of why they're bringing up money. And it might be that they came from money. It might be that they money's really important to them. Um, another another thing I always believe is check your sources, right? So, a lot of times people will criticize you maybe about your your home cleaning skills, how clean the house is. But that may also be the exact same person that never ever 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 cleans the house. And so it's easy for them to maybe criticize, but they don't help clean the house is um, notice the notice when the conversation and when we're getting the feedback. Uh, if the criticism is coming in in the most angry, volatile, negative, ugly part of the conversation, I wouldn't weigh it so heavily, if that makes sense. Sometimes uh, you don't trust. I had a person once say, you know, uh, you always trust a drunk person because drunk people always tell the truth. And I'm like, you know... Kind of, I guess, but they also wet themselves and they also, you know, can't stand up straight. So I don't know how much I would weigh what they're saying when they're drunk. And it might be true to their heart because they're willing to say it when they're intoxicated, but it also doesn't mean it's any more accurate when they're drunk. It's also no more accurate when they're really angry. So if someone's really angry and then they get all critical, I don't know that I would weigh it as more truthful. 
what it might be telling you is, boy, when that the, they are keeping some things back, or it also might be telling you that when they have no filters on, they uh, they'll say anything. Um, is your partner sometimes? Um, you might notice that you're more critical of your kids when they're doing things that you wish you wouldn't do, right? So when I see my kids biting or picking at their nails, I get mad because I'm like, don't do that because I do that. And I want you to not be like me. Stop doing that. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Check your sources. Uh, there there might be reasons why the criticism is coming out. Um, it also might be just their pet peeve, their obsession, they may have been raised that you make your bed and you make it a certain way and it's made the minute the person gets up, it's made. And it's just, you know, that is just your spouse's pet peeve. And if it's their pet peeve, you don't always need to take that as, you know, normal or the law. One thing you could do, too, when somebody's trying to to push a lot of feedback or criticism on you is start looking for the truth in what they're saying. And so if you can find some truth in what they're saying, then what you could do is just take the truth, no matter how small, work on that, and disregard the rest. You know, there is power in being able to show other people that you actually can see truth. So when somebody says, man, you spend a lot of time on your phone, don't immediately deny it. No, I don't. Find out where there's truth. You know what? I really do. I love listening to podcasts. I love whatever, whatever, whatever. Find the truth that, that, that is there and, and see if you can't work with the truth. In healthy relationships, there usually is more truth in criticism than actually criticism. <laughs> it's just somebody that's, that's trying to help give you some information. They also are a lot of times with people that actually care about you and are trying to help you be better. Um, underneath the criticism is actually a deeper pain that they might be having. If my wife is upset with me always being on my phone, it might be really what she wants is more attention from me, more work, more help, more support around the house. The, and, and so if you think about it, if you wanted to give somebody effective critical feedback, it might be smarter to share what you really want instead of just critiquing what you don't like. Sometimes it doesn't do any good to just tell everybody what you don't like to see. I don't like to see you on your phone or why do we always eat the same thing every day? Maybe it might be better to tell what you'd like to see more of. Is there any way I could help and find ways to to find some new recipes? How could I help make a meal with a new recipe this week? That might actually be a better way to do it. So you could actually acknowledge what they're saying, admit what they're what they're what's truthful about what they're saying. Accept it. Actually appreciate what they're doing. I totally agree with you. I'm on my phone all the time. I admit that it's I a lot of times defer to my phone to when I'm bored or when I'm when I have downtime and, and I'm sorry it makes you upset. And I'll work on making it better. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. And then actually make a plan to to do something better. Don't turn, though, as we're doing and getting feedback and critique from others, don't turn over your self-esteem to the other person. They shouldn't have the on and off switch to you feeling like you're worth something. And a lot of this, I think, comes from just our childhood. If, you know, if we if we would be critiqued by a parent and it impacted us as a child, 
and we felt, you know, put down and deeply unloved and uncared for, sometimes just recognize if you're feeling those same feelings today, that doesn't mean you have to take the feedback today like a child, like you would have taken it as a child 25 years ago or 40 years ago. You can actually relook at it today and put it through another filter. Maybe they don't know what they're saying. Maybe they don't understand how this is impacting you. But don't empower anyone to to change your moods consistently. You, in the end, are a, you're an entity. You're an agent. You're a free agent, quite honestly. And um, being a free agent allows you to choose how you're going to feel about the feedback, what you're going to do about the feedback. I found personally when I feel most guilty or hurt by feedback, there is a lot of truth in it. And I'm already really upset with myself, which is why I don't want them highlighting my weakness. I'm already mad and I'm already down that I don't do that. I'm already down that I'm not doing the better job here. I'm already, so thanks for the feedback. Um, but it, but me being down doesn't discount the truth of it either. There's actually, I think we're supposed to feel guilt, and guilt is what's designed to get us to make a change and do something different. Don't let the guilt turn into shame where all of a sudden we feel like we're not worth anything. That's just a trick your mind plays on you to, uh, you know, to be able to be angry at someone else sometimes. Oh, that person. So sick of people speaking truth about things I already knew that I'm not doing that I knew I should be doing, but I'm not. (laughs) When you think about it that way, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's just feedback, folks. And uh, I get it. I mean, I'm very sensitive to it as well. It's just, it doesn't elevate my life being hypersensitive to, to feedback. And I don't want to empower too many people to, uh, you know, to have that kind of energy change in me. I don't want them to have those keys to just automatically make me feel incredibly happy or incredibly sad just by how they're responding. I do have a buffer inside of me that can reinterpret how things go. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. It's a life of feedback. We're all going to get it one way or another. And interestingly, the more successful you get, the more powerful you get, the higher you get up on the ladder, the more people are sometimes trying to mix you up a bit, make it a little harder for you, and more people have an opinion about you. It's not always fun, is it? We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in today's world of online retail, social media marketing, today's age provides numerous opportunities for entrepreneurship to flourish. There has never been a better time to build an audience around your idea or your product. But with so many people and companies clamoring for attention, it's also more challenging than ever to, to you know, get your work, uh, to do a work that actually resonates with you, something that that really lights that fire inside of you and also is still marketable and and can make you some money. Todd Henry joins us now this morning. He is going to talk about his book, Louder Than Words, Harness the Power of Your Own Authentic Voice. According to him, the key to standing apart from the noise within the rest of the world is to find your unique voice. 
He's with us this morning to talk a little bit more about what uh, what that is and his book, Louder Than Words. Todd Henry, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. It's great to speak with you. Great to have you on board. Now, talk to me about uh, the book. You've written other work, works, The Accidental Creative, Day Empty, and the, the new one, Louder Than Words. What When you say louder than words and your authentic voice, what are you talking about there? Well, I think that when we use this word authenticity, and we're hearing this word a lot in our culture right now, especially in America with you know, the presidential elections is kind of the buzzword of the election, right, is authenticity. Right. I think we tend to use that word to mean just saying whatever's on your mind or just doing whatever you think or feel. But I think authenticity is more nuanced than that. I think that what we have to do, Matt, and, and I think what, what the stories of the, the people I interviewed for the book show is that we have to root our work in something we substantially care about, something that really matters to us. And then we not only have to, to root our work in that, but we have to let other people see what we care about and why it matters to us hmm. if we want our work to resonate. I think that we're in a, a culture right now that is highly skeptical, cynical, and they're looking for a reason to discount anything that we say or do. And as a result, I think that we have to be much more intentional about ensuring that uh, who we are, what we care about, where we're going, uh, and, and the things that really comprise our best work are put out there for the world to, to connect with. I, I guess that's the point, huh? Because today we live in a day of, you know, abundance, it seems like, where multiple opportunities, and you might be able to, you know, import something from China and make a lot of money just reselling it on Amazon or whatever. But if it doesn't move you, you're not going to want to, you're not going to bring be, bring passion to it you're not going to, to – it's not going to stand the test of time. It's going to fade. I think that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, as we consider, you know, all of us who are listening, those of us who go to work every day, we uh, engage in work that hopefully is having some kind of impact in the world, regardless of what our job is. You know, everything that we do is contributing value in some form or fashion to the business, to the workplace, you know, where we're engaged or to the marketplace in general. I think all of us want our work to stand for something uh, you know, even if we don't necessarily you know, love the tasks that we do all day, we want to know that we're going to work every day and contributing something that, that has value. And, and I believe that it's not about you know, finding the perfect job or finding the perfect product or finding the perfect whatever, but it's about our ability to bring who we are to what we do every day and to position ourselves so that we're bringing unique and compelling value into the world. Hmm. Now, can you do that? I mean, it seems like some things are more just altruistic. Some things seem to lend more to uh, to maybe a good, tender, good heart. But if I'm a financial planner, you're saying I could still bring – my work could should speak for me, and um, I could still bring something powerfully and unique to that field. Absolutely. I mean, I would say not only should it speak for you, I would say it does speak for you. I think everything that we do, every piece of value we contribute, every decision we make, every message that we communicate speaks for us. And it actually speaks louder than words. Our body of work speaks louder than the words that we use. We all know there's people who position themselves really well, right? And they they come across really slick and really well positioned. But at the end of the day, we just kind of sense there's something dissonant there. There's something that's not congruous. And I think a lot of times it's because people are operating in a way that's not consistent with who they really are. I think people, consumers in general, are getting savvier about the ability to discern uh, when somebody is not coming from a, a standpoint of authenticity, as, as Tim Shigel, the founder of Share This, an online 
sharing platform told me, he said, authenticity doesn't have to amplify, right? You don't have to scream. You don't have to shout because people will resonate with your message if you're rooting it in something. Hmm. That's interesting. If we are, if we're rooted, then I don't need to just go out and blow everybody up. I could simply do a, um, I could just simply share my message and my passion, my authenticity will carry it. What, what, when you, when you talk about this, give us some examples in the work that you've done and from your book, Louder Than Words, where, where you've seen somebody take and find their authentic voice and, and really it, it became a, a really strong amplifier in their work. So there, there are three kind of core elements that I saw at work in the lives of individuals and businesses as I uh, interviewed people for this book. And really over the course of the last couple of books I've written as well, it's funny because all of these books kind of flow together and many of the stories have sort of been building up to this this message of, of building an authentic and resonant voice. But uh, the three kind of core drivers of what I call the voice engine, right? The drivers of an authentic, compelling voice. The first one is identity, which is really about answering the question, who are you? Hmm. What is the platform upon which your best work is founded? And I think for many people, they never really ask that question. Many organizations, I mean, they have nice mission statements on the wall. They have nice vision statements, but those vision statements aren't connected with reality. They're not connected with what people are actually engaging in every day. And so I think one of the things that we have to do, and I saw uh, many people in the course of my research who did this, we have to identify what is it that we really care about. So one of the ways we as individuals can do that, we can ask, for example, you know, what fills me with compassionate anger? You know, what problems am I obsessed with? Uh, what moves me emotionally? What, you know, what makes me cry? Um, you know, how do we develop a sense of, of who we are, of, of how our work is, is uh, most resonant? One of the, the people that I had the chance to interview for the book was uh, a guy named Amos Heller, who was a, a, a musician. He's a bass player, uh, and he was kind of the, the, the king of bass players in his home city, right? He was uh, mm. uh, kind of the, the, the go-to guy that everybody wanted to, to play bass with him. And he, he decided, you know, I think I'm going to move to a place where I can maybe have more impact. So he decided to move to Nashville. Um, and he moved to Nashville, became a, a small fish in a very big pond. And one day, a, a more experienced person was asking him, hey, what do you want to do? What is it you really want to do? And he said, well, I'll do anything. I'll do studio session work. I'll do, you know, I'll, I'll go on the road with someone. I'll, I'll play showcases. And his friend said, that, that's not good enough. That doesn't help me. That's not precise enough. And he said, you have to tell me exactly what you want. And Amos said, okay, great. I want to be on a bus traveling down the road performing with an artist. That was kind of his – he said, great. Now I know how to recommend you. Amos had chosen something very specific. Hmm. And through a long series of circumstances, Amos ended up getting a, a, the kind of opportunity he wanted, and that led to another thing, led to another thing. And now Amos is a touring bass player for Taylor Swift. Oh, wow. Right? This is over the course of many years, which is kind of a really nice gig to have as a bass player, right? Yeah. But it all began – and I've seen this happen over and over again in careers – with people in, in, in the marketplace and in other places where they're afraid to make a decision. They're afraid to commit because they don't want to miss out on opportunities. But the reality is it's kind of counterintuitive. But when you refuse to make a commitment, that is often when people don't know how to recommend you. You, know, you don't know how to look for opportunities when you're not being precise. But it's the moment that we begin to decide. The word decide means to cut off. 
when we begin to decide and make a decision that opportunities reveal themselves because we're being precise and we're founding our work upon who we really are. Hmm. So that's really what identity is about. It's about founding your work upon who you are, making bold decisions with your work uh, and, in and, that and, area. And you gotta you gotta make that tough cut to 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 I guess to to benefit and to and to know. I mean, part of that is saying it right when you finally say what you want. You can see how it feels. That's exactly right. And, and again, I think, I think a lot of the people, Matt, are afraid to make bold decisions because they don't want people to, to discount them. They don't want to miss out on opportunities. But the reality is if you're trying to please everyone with your work, and this is true in marketing, it's true in career decisions, it's true in launching a product. If you're trying to please everyone, you're not going to please anyone. Mm. You're not going to resonate with anyone because people are going to sense that you're just putting it out there and trying to get the best response you can from everyone. This going to be a very shallow response. It's not right. going to be a deep and resonant response. So you have to found your work. You have to root it in a sense of identity. Who am I? What do I want? And am I willing to make bold decisions in order to get there? That's great. And that's really kind of the first core driver of the voice engine. The second one, Matt, is vision which is about where am I going? So I'm not doing my work for me. I'm doing it because I want to lead an intended audience somewhere. I want to take them somewhere. I want to impact the world in some way. And this is what vision is about. And the, the most compelling voices that I discovered in the course of my research had a clear vision for their intended audience, for the people they wanted to reach. I don't know if you um, had a chance, Matt, to see the Like a Girl campaign that the Always brand created no. last year. Uh, it, it, it was a, a campaign that was created uh, by Leo Burnett and Procter & Gamble for their Always brand. And uh, it was basically what happened is they had uh, these uh, kind of like young teenage girls uh, you know, come into a room, and then they had some like, adult women come into the room, and they asked the adult women on video, what does it mean to run like a girl? Right. And they were kind of flailing about and doing this sort of really uh, stereotypical kind of thing. What is it? What does it look like to, to throw like a girl? And they sort of did this stereotypical, oh, you know, flimsy throwing thing. And then they brought these young, uh, early teenage or preteen girls in and they filmed them. They said, what does it mean to run like a girl? And they just took off running hmm. all serious, you know, serious on their face. What does it mean to throw like a girl? And they threw with a really determined motion. And what they were trying to point out is that at some point in our lives, these narratives creep in, and we begin to turn something like run like a girl, which these young girls did with great determination, into uh, sort of a type or something that's kind of a, a, a slanderous thing to say about someone. And they, they filmed this video, they put it out, and they wanted to attach that to uh, help to, uh, to a, a, a mission of helping teenage girls with self-esteem and help them understand that you shouldn't let these narratives affect you. And so they put it out as a, as a YouTube video, and it got millions and millions of views. It resonated wow. deeply with the audience. And then it turned into a Super Bowl commercial. It actually was a very successful Super Bowl commercial for, for this brand. But the reason it resonated, according to the people who created it, was they were taking what they cared about. They wanted you know, to, to help people understand the, the importance of self-esteem among young girls, because they've done tremendous research showing that those teenage years are a time where self-esteem takes a tremendous hit. What the audience cares about, which obviously is the same thing, but then also an idea that was kind of already out there in the world had momentum. And they wanted to build something at that platform and, 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 and at the intersection of those three things. And when they built it at the intersection of those three things, it had tremendous resonance because it was on a vision of where they wanted to lead their audience. Mm, so identity, that's cool. what I care about, 
vision. Where do I want to lead my audience? And where do they already want to go? And how do I begin to create messages that will meet them where they already are? Powerful. And when let's you take, do that. Let, it has tremendous power. Let's take a break and come back and do the third engine. Um, uh, the the third voice engine. Identity is one. Vision is one. We've got another one coming up. Again, we're speaking with Todd Henry, author of the book Louder Than Words, Harness the Power of Your Authentic Voice. These principles, these tools where you find your voice, you find your identity, you find your vision, um, it creates it creates a force. It creates a power in you that uh, will enable you and your organization to uh, to take it to the next level, to produce results. And do so in a way that's aligned to your purpose in life, your vision. It's cool stuff. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. More with Todd Henry when we come back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like uh, you are an authentic human, an authentic individual? Do you feel like you know who you are, your identity? Have you answered the question, who am I? How do I want to impact the world? Do you have a very clear vision of what you want to do, either professionally or just in your life? Because... Having those two things questioned, identity, who are you, your vision, where do you want to take uh, your life, um, there, there are two key parts to what is called the voice engine. And joining us today uh, is the author of the book, Louder Than Words, Harness the Power of Your Authentic Voice. Todd Henry joins us. If you go to his website, toddhenry.com, you can find out more information about his speaking, articles he's written, books he's written, and... Um, uh, just a great resource to help us figure out who we are, our voice. And we welcome you back, Todd. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So you've taught us identity uh, as part of this engine that, that'll help you know our voice become more authentic. Also, our vision, having a vision, um, and knowing who we're about um, truly can, can be powerful. What, what's the third uh, part of the voice engine? So the third driver of authentic voices is mastery. And mastery is about mastering the set of skills that you need in order to bring that voice into the world. Because without mastery, you won't be credible. So last year, I was speaking um, just outside of San Diego at an event, at a conference. And in order to get to Coronado Island, where I was speaking, you had to drive across a bridge and through a, a narrow sliver of land. And on one side of the land was a naval base. On the other side of the land was the U.S. Navy SEALs BUDS training facility, where the yeah. Navy SEALs become Navy SEALs, basically. And my driver said, you will see those SEALs out there at 7 in the morning one day, and the next day they'll be out there at 2 in the afternoon, and the next day they'll be out there at you know, 12 midnight. And he said, it's just a, they do randomized training, and they do that, Matt, is because they never know when they're going to be called upon to confront an enemy at a moment's notice when they're going to have to, to step up to address a threat. And so they have to be battle ready at all times. And that phrase really resonated with me. I thought battle ready, what a great way to describe, you know, those of us who, who go to work and we're confronting problems and we're having to deal with complex issues every day, even though obviously the threats aren't nearly as, as dangerous or imminent as what, you know, as what our, our military faces. I thought, what would it take 
for me to be battle ready or for the people I work with, or the companies I work with to be battle ready. And I think that's the mindset we have to adopt when it comes to mastery. Hmm. What are the set of daily practices or dailies that we need to engage in every single day so that we're prepared at a moment's notice when an opportunity arises, we're prepared when a crisis arises, we're prepared to deliver our message or to deliver, to deliver value at a moment's notice. And so, for example, that could mean how much time do you spend every day studying, you know, noticing patterns in your environment, paying attention to nuance, paying attention to emerging trends, paying attention to what's going on, not just in your industry, but outside of your industry, because the next great idea for your company or for your industry may not come from inside your industry. Right, right. So how much time do you spend studying nuance? How much time spending conversation with other people who sharpen you, who challenge you? Do you do that on a daily basis? Do you have strategic conversations on a daily basis to push you out of your comfort zone, to challenge your thinking, to help you pay attention to patterns? Do you have a collective of people that you meet with on a regular basis? You know, do you do business development every day? Are you out there planting seeds that are going to bear fruit in you know, days, weeks, months, or years? So these are just a couple of examples of the kinds of daily practices that we need to build, Matt, individually, if we want to be prepared, if we want to be battle ready or be in, as athletes call it, be in game shape, you know, ready to step on the court or step on the field at a moment's notice. It seems like uh, mastery as a component, I mean, all of them, I guess, identity, vision, and mastery, they, they bring you a, a kind of an inner confidence and an inner sense of who you are, that you're capable, that you're battle ready, as you say. Which seems like now I could I would use that energy, that positivity to share my voice, to be more strong, more aggressive. Absolutely, no question. And you know, the funny thing is all of these drivers of the voice engine, identity, vision, mastery, they all work together, right? So as you develop a sense of identity, who you are, it helps you cultivate your vision and where you want to take your intended audience, the people you're trying to impact. And then understand what skills you need to develop, what patterns you need to notice, you know, how you need to sharpen yourself so that you can deliver that value, which then also, by the way, as we act, we learn about ourselves. We learn about who we are and what we care about, what we're good at, what we're not good at, which then feeds again into our sense of identity and who we are, mm. which then sort of perpetuates the cycle. So they all kind of seem to work together within individuals and organizations who get all of these three pieces right. That's powerful. So you go out, you teach this to organizations, um, and and you train them on this. What, what are you seeing? I, I mean – this is this is what happens when all of a sudden everybody in a company has an authentic voice. Well, and this is the challenge, right? The challenge is that you have to have a culture that is willing to embrace and adopt this mindset. Because frankly, I, I think there are many organizations out there that are kind of afraid of <laughs> empowering people to be able to speak what they're saying and to, to bring who they are to what they do. The reality is, though, that when organizations get this right, especially within teams, when you have teams of people who come together uh, and, and enact this kind of boldness and this kind of uh, you know, identity, vision, mastery, working together within the team, something powerful happens because people begin speaking their mind. People begin confronting one another. They begin talking about ideas and, and arguing and fighting over ideas, not over personality. Hmm. Because when we feel like we're not welcome, our voice isn't welcome into the conversation, our, our conversations tend to be petty, our fights tend to be petty, we, you know, conflicts arise because people feel like they're not being valued. But once you welcome people into the organization, it creates a patina of accountability throughout the organization where people recognize 
if I don't speak up, if I don't bring myself fully into this conversation or into this environment, then I'm not going to be around for long right? You know, because I am accountable for doing that. And it's actually kind of the opposite. If people are afraid that it's going to introduce negative conflict, actually what it does is it quells negative conflict and it introduces positive conflict. You know, all fighting is not bad inside of organizations. Fighting over ideas is a good thing, right. but we want to create the kind of environment where we're fighting about ideas, not fighting over personality or petty politics. Is that is that's so true, isn't it? And and all of a sudden, yeah, this confidence makes it so. If if I am on a team that can't adapt, that doesn't want to become, you know, kind of a more empowering team where everyone has an authentic voice, then you you would also have enough strength to opt out and to just leave. And go find a place that does have it instead of just feeling, you know, disempowered and disabled in your workforce. That's exactly right. I mean, weak leaders try to control. They try to control their teams. Weak leaders try to control the voice of their team. They try to control the input of their team. Confident leaders, leaders who are confidently adaptable, not driven by ego, because ego is about control. It's about Mm -hmm. inflexibility. It's all about me. You know, I'm invaluable, not I'm valuable. These are different mindsets. But confident leaders are willing to empower the people on their team to shine because they recognize that the greatest potential for impact for me as a leader will only be revealed through that leadership, only when my influence scales. So leaders who are are confident are about influence, not about control, Hmm. right? And this is a, a very different thing. I want to replicate. So when your voice begins to really create impact within the organization, others become carriers of your message. They resonate with what you're doing, and then they begin to carry that message throughout the organization. And that's the power of an authentic voice. If it doesn't end with you and the people who hear you, then other people become carriers of that message, and they adopt it. It becomes part of the fabric of the organization that you're leading. Well, I think if anybody listening, you've probably seen that happen. You've seen one of these uh, these leaders uh, anywhere in your life that where their voice did get carried and it did kind of magnify through other people who took on that voice and it spreads. I mean, you can see it. It exists. No question. And and it is, it is the path to greater impact and greater influence. Listen, if you have work that you care about, work that matters to you personally, of course you want to see that influence other people. You want to see it lead other people. You want to create a body of work you can point to with pride and say, that body of work, that delta, that change I've created represents the sum of my greatest accomplishments, not the sum of my greatest compromises. Hmm. You know, but in order to do that, we have to be willing every day to put ourselves into the arena. We have to be willing to bring who we are to the table and say, hey, I'm going to like it or not, you know, resonate with it or not. I'm going to bring the best of who I am to what I do. And I'm going to strive to build a body of work I can point to with pride. What What would you say, uh, Todd, is that is something I can do today that anybody out there listening might be overwhelmed because, oh, I don't even have the book <laughs> and I got to get the book and learn it and read it. But what and you've, you've mentioned uh, identity, vision and mastery. What would you say is like the one thing that if they just started doing it today would immediately open up their eyes, their mind to more authenticity? So I want to give you a, a handful of questions you can ask yourself as it relates to identity to help you begin to drill down on what what really fuels my what is the work that just resonates deeply within me that I think will also resonate with others. The first one is, and I mentioned this earlier, what fills you with anger? Not, and I'm not talking about road rage. I'm not talking about in, you know some, somebody did a slight injustice. 
you off in traffic. I'm talking about compassionate anger. The word passion comes from the root word pati, which means to suffer, right? So compassion means to suffer with. What fills you with compassionate anger? When you see it, you think, ah, somebody needs to write that injustice. When have you seen those moments of compassionate anger in your life, in your work, and how has that fueled your work? And how can you bring that sense of compassionate anger to the work that you're doing today? Whatever that is. You you mentioned financial planners earlier. It could be, I'm tired of seeing people taken advantage of by the very system that's supposed to help them. Hmm. And that fuels me with compassionate anger, and I'm going to parlay that message into something that will resonate with my intended audience. Another one could be, what makes you cry? What moved you emotionally? You know, when have you been moved by something you've seen? I, I am profoundly moved, Matt, by the stories of underdogs. You know, and, mm-hmm. and I, I, like for example, I wa- recently watched the movie Rudy. I don't know if you've seen. Yeah, movie I love that. Yeah, Rudy Rudiger from. Oh, love that movie. And at the end of the movie, it's this tiny little guy who makes the football team. He's being carried off the field. You know, my wife comes down while I'm watching. She's like, "Why are you crying? You've <laughs> you seen are a mess." Times. I'm like, but, but he's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. <laughs> They're carrying him. You know, I'm moved by the stories of underdogs. And guess what? That fuels my best work. It fuels a lot. Of, I, I spend a ton of time with organizations who are David's taking on Goliaths. And I love that because it, it, it's something that's just core to how I see the world. I love helping underdogs. So what is that for you? What moves you emotionally? And how can you parlay that into uh, something that can have impact for the world? And one, just one final thing yeah. you can ask is, what, what problems am I obsessed with? Where do I find myself naturally gravitating? If, if given the choice between five different problems, which one will I tend to gravitate toward the most? In the past, where have I done my best work because I've been so obsessed with solving a specific kind of problem? And how can I seek out more of those kinds of problems in my work so that I can begin to be decisive, to be precise, to say no to things that are okay so I can say yes to things that are great. Because mm. the reality is we can fill our life with a lot of good things, a lot of good work, and neglect the great work that we're capable of as a result. That's great. Good stuff. Todd Henry's his name. Go to his website, toddhenry.com. The book is Louder Than Words. Harness the power of your authentic voice. He's got other books there as well. And uh, just more information about the articles he's written. Everything you need to know about Todd is there. Todd Henry, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Matt. You bet. Great stuff. Wow. Isn't it interesting? You got your life. You got, it's yours. It's all yours. Do you have an identity? Do you know who you are? Do you have a vision about what you want to do with it? Are you mastering something? It's authenticity. Seems basic, right? But you got to begin somewhere. We'll take a break. Come back. Wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I mean, there's something about it, isn't there? Knowing you, knowing yourself, knowing what you want in the world, it makes a difference. Most of us don't have time to do that. We're too busy, you know, doing our job that we don't actually think about ourselves. And I've always uh, had this favorite quote that says, um, uh, superior performance fosters independence of action. The better you perform something, the more freedom you have, right? Because when you are incredible at something, 
um, you will have this freedom to kind of write your ticket. Whether we always see that in professional sports, you know, the, the best athletes are the ones that can write their ticket. They can be a free agent. When they're a free agent, it's not a scary thing because they're so good. People want them. But when you're a, when you're just an average worker, and which probably means you, you don't have passion behind what you're doing, then it's going to cost you. You don't have the freedom to just say, I'm done. You don't have the freedom to walk away and, and do what you'd rather do. So pay, pay attention to that. That's, uh, I think that's what Todd Henry was getting into is you got to know who you are. You got to know where you want to go and you got to be good at what you do. And if you do that, bada boom, bada bing, you'll have more success. You'll be like this 1966 Volvo. Listen to this. A Long Islander uh, has, has a revered uh, red Volvo. He's known for racking up a lot of miles on it. This car, a Volvo, has three million miles and it's still hitting the pavement in mint condition. Irvin Gordon says he cranked out another 273,000 miles in his uh, 1966 P1800 convertible since he hit the triple million mark in September of 2013. The guy drives it everywhere, apparently. 273,000 miles in three years with no signs of stopping. It's better than new, the 75-year-old retired teacher told The Post. Everything is 100%. It's never broken down. It always starts right up. No matter how hot or cold it is outside, Gordon has given this baby 28 oil changes, four tune-ups, changed the transmission fluid four times in the last year. At first, people have a hard time believing that Gordon has tallied as many miles, um, you know, because that's like going around the earth about 126 times. He says the biggest secret is as simple as reading the owner's manual. Many people just tuck it under the kitchen sink or in the glove compartment and never look at it. You got to make the effort. So whether you want your Volvo to hit 3 million miles or you want, you know, your job to get you through your life, you got to put effort into it. That's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information, so you can put your shoulder into it. Cool stuff. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Next hour, more tools, more information to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Don't go away. All right, Cole. How about this one? B7. Miss. All right, Jeff. Let's go with C12. Hit. <laughs> D2. Miss. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. How about C11? Miss. Jeff. Come on. Hit. <laughs> you sunk my battleship. Good for you, Cole. Ah. Well... Welcome to Screen Cleaning here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm joined here by the winner of this game, Battleship, Cole Wissinger. And I I have to tip my hat to him because he didn't gloat or rub my face in it. He won gracefully. <laughs> I take back everything nice I've ever said about Cole Wissinger, or at least the things that I just said about him. 
Anyway, welcome to Screen Cleaning. We're here every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, and we are here really to help you save your Friday and Saturday nights to do the most entertaining things you can so that you don't have to scrimp and save or look very hard to find things that are appropriate to do together with your family. And we have got a great topic today to help you do just that. We're going to be speaking with an avid board gamer or just gamer who owns over 400 board games, most of which I've probably never heard, probably about 95% of them I've never heard. And uh, it's going to be a good show. We're going to have a lot of fun. And one of our goals here on the show is to give you the best in entertainment news. We don't like to focus on the negative. We only want to give you the very best. That's what we're all about. And so let's start off by doing that. I have some fantastic news that's probably going to make you very jealous. But here it is. As of last night at midnight... I officially released myself from my cable contract. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's so exciting. I don't have to uh, take a look at my bill every month and wonder why does this price keep going up and why am I paying $80 per month to not watch TV ever? And we really don't. I look up all these movies to record, and then they just sit there on my DVR gathering dust. I don't know if a digital file can gather dust. I mean, that's the question, though. (laughs) If it canceled as of midnight last night, does that mean you got through all the things that were sitting on your DVR for months and months and saved and waiting? I was going to try to do that. that someday. Oh, they just sat there for months and months. So I I made a a note of all the ones that I might want to revisit at a certain time, and I'll Mm -hmm. just get them from the library. So no big loss there. (laughs) Finally cut the cord, though. Good job, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. It took me about an hour to do. And then later that night, they had special scissors to cut the cord. Yes. (laughs) Later that night, they had some special manager call me up and, you know, try to offer me one more really big deal. They basically were going to say, well, well, if you stay in your contract, we'll give you like a $22 a month deal. And it was so refreshing to just say no. Nope. I'm not going to let them rope me in again. And, of course, they ended it by saying, okay, if you ever want to come back, we'll welcome you with open arms, basically, is what they said. Yeah. Not going to happen. We're moving forward. We're cutting the cord. No amount of money or uh, any lack of money thereof is going to make us stay on. You know the price of your freedom, Jeff. Absolutely. It is not $22 a month. Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's great news because now I have a lot more time to use my movie pass, which we've been talking about. Ten bucks a month, you get to go see as many movies as you want, uh, asterisk. And um, I've used it twice, two nights in a row. So now I have more time to go watch movies by myself <laughs> That's in the movie theater. so popular of you, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, I would get one for my wife, but we have a three-month-old, so we don't get out much. But it's great. It works for the time being. It's 10 bucks a month, and they haven't been sued yet, so I'm just going to milk it for all I can. That's the spirit. Cole is anxiously awaiting his in the mail. Yep. Should arrive sometime between now and September 10th. 
So I think a, that was the date. To a get. week and mm-hmm. a half more. That's not too much longer to wait. It's all right. And we have some excellent news from Cole, and I'm going to let Cole share this news with you. I know he's super excited about it, and I'm super excited for him. Cole, what's the big great news that you want to share? I'm a somewhat certified movie critic nowadays. Yay. (laughs) That's exciting. It is. Somewhat movie critic. Explain. What do you mean by somewhat? Well, I'm a a contributor, right, for a certain indie entertainment magazine. And so I am able to watch movies before they come out, and then I write a review of them, and it gets actually published. Wow. Which is kind of fun. That is exciting. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Um. Wow. And so these films are kind of a little more obscure films that might not be available to a a lot of people. Right. Not the ones that we generally talk about on Friday with Rod (laughs) and that kind of thing. But they're still really good films by really creative people and, you know, people that haven't done movies before and they're getting their message and their vision and their movies out there as well. And I think that's really awesome. Yeah. Sometimes those are the best ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, not on this show, but on another show, we're gonna I, we're gonna have to go over this list that my dad shared with me from the L.A. Times of movies that really nobody knows about that you should all check out. And that's so, always a tricky list to make because if you right. want people to like your list, you have to make it accessible enough that they are going to recognize a few of them. Sure. You can't actually give them a whole list of 20 that no one's going to hear of because yeah. then the list can't gain traction. So you got to walk a, a pretty tight line if that's the kind of list you want to make. Well, and the sad part about that is one of the films on the list was on my DVR. <laughs> Never got around to watching it. I really – I would always try to uh, convince my wife to watch it with me, but she never wanted to. So I just well, didn't watch it. Anyway, um, we've been meaning to do this more on the show. And today I'm happy to say that we finally can. We're going to tell you why today is significant in movie history. September 1st – and I did the math. September 1st in 1991 – was Harry Potter's first day of school. Aww. Did you know this? I did. And every school year... <laughs> really? Yeah, I know. Uh, Sorry, every... I'll be more excited next time. Yeah, yeah. More shocked. More... Every school year, he went to school on September 1st, mm-hmm. which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. From Platform right? 9 and 3 quarters, leaves right. at the same time every year. So mm-hmm. maybe sometimes he's going to school on a Saturday or a Sunday, which would not fly uh, here in the muggle world. I must tell you. Um, And then also, I didn't have to do the math on this one. The first day of Harry and Harry Potter and Ginny Weasley's son was September 1st, 2017. So today. today. So he just he just left uh, platform nine and three quarters. He's on his way to Hogwarts. He's going to have a great semester. Um, Yeah. So good for them. Hogwarts is starting again. (laughs) Anyway, that's just a bit of what's going on in the news today and why today is significant in movie history. When we come back, I'm going to share with you some other great news. I'm going to do a little bit of a review for you. Not a movie review, not a board game review, but an app or application, if you will, review. Super excited about it. We've talked about it before on Matt Townsend's show, and we're going to keep talking about it on our show when we return. This is Screen Cleaning. 
Thanks for tuning in to a 90-second movie review for the film Logan Lucky on BYU Radio. In 2013, Steven Soderbergh announced that he was retiring from making films. He's returned, though, to direct Logan Lucky, and we are lucky he did. Logan Lucky is a heist film. Soderbergh made Ocean's 11, 12, and 13, so heist movies are in his wheelhouse. This time around, though, the actors portray stereotypical Southerners trying to steal money from Charlotte Motor Speedway. Not only one of the most notable tracks on the NASCAR schedule, but they want to do it during one of the biggest races of the year, the Coca-Cola 600. The humor in this film is a dry, deadpan style that is funny. The best character for me was Joe Bang. Daniel Craig playing an explosives expert with bleach blonde hair. It was really fun. And he never once sounded like James Bond, and he was always on point. Plus, there are some cameos in the film of NASCAR drivers not playing drivers that were fun to catch. Channing Tatum and Adam Driver as the Logan brothers play off of each other very well. I was very entertained by this film, but I must say I am a NASCAR fan, so there's some extra in it for me. The ending did make me ask some questions, but there may be a sequel. Also, this is not a true story, as you'll see in the disclaimer at the end of the credits. If you plan to take your kids to Logan Lucky, there is some language spread throughout the film. You'll also see some violence in the jail as prisoners fight guards and each other, and a man is naked in the backseat of a car, but he's visible only from the chest up. Logan Lucky is rated PG-13. I am giving it a B+. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. I feel like this song has been playing through my head the past few weeks, and here's why. So, a while back, my sweet wife gently said to me that I probably ought to get in into shape because... Uh, a shape that isn't round? Y- y- yes. Thank you, Cole. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for support, Jeff. There you go. Uh, because I come from a family where we didn't, we tend to have a lot of health issues, whether it's uh, issues with the brain or the heart or with diabetes or with different types of cancer. And so my wife has really started worrying for me. And I decided to finally listen because this has been something that I've wanted to do my whole life anyway, is to get into shape and not, you know, go really strong for a week or two and not eat anything that I love and then, you know, immediately return to what I do love and binging on it, in fact, which is so often the case with people that are trying to lose weight and get in shape. I'm actually trying to make lasting change. I came across an app that I decided to give a chance or to give a try. It's called Diet Bet. The way Diet Bet works is you pay a certain amount of money, and it varies depending on which program you're going to go with. They're called games. You pay a certain amount of money to join a game that lasts for either four weeks, six months, or it's just a game where you're trying to maintain your weight. If you're doing the four-week program, you have four weeks to lose 4% of your body fat. If you're doing the six-month program, you have six months to lose 10% of your body fat. So I elected for the four-week option because I've never you know, done something like this before. And the way it works is it's not a winner-takes-all program. If you accomplish your goal, you get a piece of the pot that everybody contributes to. So everybody, Not a piece of the pie, Jeff? That's true. No more pie. Um, so I, I joined a $35 uh, game. So my $35 went into the pot. So 35 times however many people in the group, that's how big the pot is, okay? 
Now, of course, this company is going to take a 25% cut of that because that uh, that's the if you if you only do $35, it's 25% of the cut. But if I and I've done the math, if if two thirds of the people accomplish the goal, I'll gain like ten dollars. I shouldn't say gain because I'm all about losing, right? Uh, losing the weight anyway. So really, this isn't for me. It's not uh, the incentive isn't to earn money because you know I'm probably only going to make five or ten bucks. But the incentive is to not lose the money that I put in. Right, And there are ways that, that people can maximize their winnings. Let's say they join multiple games at a time. The problem is they're putting more money down, so they'll have to wait longer to get that money back. But I'm happy to say that I've already reached the goal, the weight goal, in three weeks of the four weeks. Yay! Thank you, thank you. And so what I did is I just joined another group so that I could maintain instead of reverting back into my old habits. So I'm starting to notice a change in the way I think about food and listening more to my body and really asking myself uh, questions. Do I need to stuff myself silly? Do I need to eat this bag of Cheetos? Can I wait to the weekend to have a dessert? And the answer in the right order is no, no, and yes, if you're keeping score at home. Anyway, diet bet, something to check out. I've had some success with it as well as so many other people. Um, Of course, if you're really worried, you might want to talk to your doctor. And I'm not a doctor, and neither is Dr. Matt. He's a doctor, just not that kind of doctor. Anyway, when we come back, we're going to be speaking with Jacob Gowans, who is a published author. He is a dentist, actually, a pediatric dentist. But for the sake of our discussion with him, He is first and foremost an avid gamer. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson. I know we talk a lot about movies on this show, but Screen Cleaning is first and foremost an entertainment show. That includes TV, sports, we even did a show about video games. But today we're going to be talking about another entertaining activity, board games. And we've got an avid gamer with us here on the show today. His name is Jacob Gowans. He received a Bachelor of Arts in Theater Studies at Brigham Young University. He's a published author, and Jacob, we're going to need to have you on the show to talk about that another time. Uh, A Tale of Light and Shadow is one of the book series and uh, Scion Beta, which I actually narrated. You should check it out. And he's currently a practicing pediatric dentist in Georgia. And as I said, he is an avid gamer. And he's going he's gonna to spend some time with us here today to tell us what it's all about. Jacob Gowans, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So first of all, one thing that uh, the, the way that you and I met was back at college in a storytelling mm-hmm. class. And yep. I am not an avid gamer. I was a little blown away when I entered your home and saw just the wall of games that you have there. <laughs> but it seems like a lot of these role-playing games and, and tabletop games, there's an element of storytelling involved. Do you Definitely. find that that's true? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, that's one of the things that I prefer about uh board games you know when you when you play board games when you play a game over and over again or if you play with a group over and over again 
that that dynamic kind of becomes its own narrative to where you kind of remember, you know, let's say I'm playing a game that has a betrayal element in it. Uh, if you're the person who betrayed somebody last time in, in, in a previous game, your your game playing buddies are less likely to trust you in a, in, a, in a forthcoming game because of that. Interesting. So, yeah. you know, clearly on this show, we don't really advocate like poker playing or anything like that or gambling. <laughs> but do you find that when you when you play with somebody often enough, these tabletop games, do you find that you can tell what that person's going to do next or what their strategy is going to be just based on how often you've played with them? Are there are there tells that they have? Yeah, I mean, you can kind of if you play enough with people like my dad, for example, uh, my dad's a terrible liar. And, and we've all <laughs> kind of gotten used to knowing when he's bluffing or if he's like the bad guy in a game, we'll, we'll figure it out pretty quickly because he's just really bad at it. Yeah. So I know that you've played with a ton of different people. In fact, you it seems like you have like a weekly game night that you host at your home playing all sorts mm -hmm. of different games. Is there some kind of a social contract that you have with these players? Or in other words, is there like a, a general set of rules, whether they're actually spoken or if they're more unspoken rules? I'm curious to know what type of gaming etiquette is involved. So I, I, I do host a weekly game night. And when I set up, I recently moved to Georgia and I, and I set up a new gaming group and I actually sent them the rules that I expected them to follow before our first game night. And I'm not going to go over all of them, but like a couple of big ones to me are, first of all, you got to be a good sport about playing a board game. I mean, no one wants to play with a sore loser or a sore winner, but also <laughs> I don't want to play board games with somebody who's going to be on their cell phone the whole time, you know? Ooh, that's so a that's good one. one. That's, that's one of my big ones is just be there to play the game and not to do other things. And then uh, if you're playing board games at someone's house and you don't own the board game, you should always ask them if you can put a drink or food on the table because board games are expensive. I mean you're, you're, you're looking at 20, 30 minimum to sometimes uh, uh, 80 to $100 maximum for a board game. So spilling a drink on a game – can be like ruining someone's, you know, $100 board game. Sure, sure. I, I want to tell you a little story. I'm not going to name names, but uh, <laughs> I recently played a game with someone and found out very quickly that this person was ruining any possibility that I had of winning the game. So I then took it upon myself to completely sabotage that person's chances of winning so neither of us could really make any progress. This person <laughs> uh, then proceeded to uh, very subtly lift took the board, grabbed the board by his or her hands, and launched it across the room. <laughs> and I said, okay, I guess we're done here. Anyway, it probably wasn't very nice for me to do that. Um, <laughs> just an interesting aside I thought you might find funny. Okay, let me, let me take this in a little bit of a different direction here. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a two-part question. First of all, I'm curious to know how many games you currently own and secondly, you know, with so many options that we have on Friday and Saturday night to go to the movies or stay home and watch a movie, there's just so many options for entertainment. What sort of an argument would you make for board games and staying home and playing a board game? Uh, so I currently own around 400 games plus plus expansions, and that's wow. uh, does your wife have some sort of a rule with you that once you reach a certain number of board games, you have to get rid of one of the others or several of the others? 
Um, once we run out of space, that's probably when we'll have to have that conversation. <laughs> once it's the question between getting more board games or giving up a kid, then yeah, that's, <laughs> that's when it's too much. It's when you that's cross the right. line. That's, that's a pretty decent sized collection, I guess. Um, the, uh, the reason why I prefer board gaming to like watching a TV show or playing a video game even is because, you know, you're actually interacting with people, um, and that, I think, is what makes the memory so much more sweeter than uh, just going to a movie and enjoying something together or playing a video game at the same time and you know getting a headshot on somebody. Is when you play a board game, you're looking them in the eye, and if they if they backstab you like in the Game of Thrones game that I love, you have that interpersonal connection that that's like something that they're they're looking you in the eye when they you know betray <laughs> you and and take away your 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 uh, territory or. Uh, kick you out of the game. So, I mean, it's, it's a very personal experience and it, it makes for great memories. So if, if you want to go down, you want to go down while staring that person in the eyes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned a couple of them. I'm curious to know, other than, you know, the social aspect of it, let, let's talk about kids, for instance. I've got three sure. kids. You've got like at least a dozen. Um, <laughs> What are the benefits of board games for children that are, you know, still very much learning and absorbing everything that they see and and do? I think the number one thing that that it teaches kids is how to lose. And I think it's an important lesson for kids to learn. You know, a lot of kids when they first start playing board games, if they lose, they're going to cry and they're going to throw a fit and they're going to blame somebody for them losing. And it takes it takes a little bit of time and maybe a little bit of warning to say, hey, if you keep acting like that, you can't play games with us. That the, the child learns to deal emotionally with losing, and um, that's that can be learned in other ways too, sports and stuff. But games, it's a really simple way. But beyond that, it teaches them, I think, to solve problems, to think critically, to do math, to exercise logical thinking. So all those things they really do teach children to to. Um, you know, to think outside the box. I mean, I watch my kids play games with me and it's really amazing to see them slowly grasp strategy and, uh, you know, learn how to even beat me sometimes. So, uh, Jacob, we, we've got a, a few minutes left in this segment. I just wanted to ask you if you could give us some ideas for, you know, clearly there are different scenarios in which people play games and you obviously cannot play every game in every scenario. So I was hoping mm -hmm. that you could give us like your favorite two-player game and your favorite game to play with a large group and your fat your favorite fast game or your favorite long-haul game could you give us some uh, uh, some examples there sure uh, my favorite two-player game is called twilight struggle it's a war game that reenacts the cold war and it is one of the best games as far as two people staring each other down from the opposite side of a board and making really tough decisions every turn um, you have to give it a few games to really get get the feel of it under your belt. But once you do, it um, it becomes one of the one of the best games you can play as far as just pure strategy. Um, now I'll mention a couple other two player games that are quicker because Twilight Struggle can take two to three hours. But if you want a couple of quick two player games, uh, Patchwork is fantastic. Um, it's simple enough that even a, a children can grasp it, but they'll slowly learn to see how much depth it has in strategy um and also lord of the rings the confrontation for people who are kind of fantasy nerds it's kind of uh, lord of the rings confrontation is kind of like stratego and kind of like chess and it's just a really fun quick little game that two people can play 
Now, if you're playing with a larger group, let's say eight to 10 people, my favorite game is Resistance Avalon. And that's where uh, you play as teams trying to – half the team is, are supporters of Merlin and the other half are the minions of Mordred trying to defeat the the, the good guys, the, the servants of Arthur. And it's a bluffing game with deduction, trying to figure out who are the bad guys and who are the good guys. And um, there's lots of accusations and it can be just a really fun game. But some people are really bad at bluffing. Some people are really bad <laughs> like at social dad. games. <laughs> and so And so for those people, I would recommend a game called Captain Sonar which is a, eight, a, a game up for up to eight people where they take command of two submarines trying to sink each other in kind of like a game of Battleship, but, but much more complex and much more tense. Uh, it's just a great game where um, it, it ends up kind of boiling down to people just shouting orders to try to get their submarines moved around this board, and it's just a fantastic game. Now, for long-haul games, if you want a game that's like – when I think of long-haul, I think of games that you play in multiple settings over maybe the course of days or weeks, maybe even months. Gloomhaven is the hot game right now. Um, it will take you uh, – it takes – I've heard over 100 hours to play. It's a cooperative Whoa. game. Yeah, yeah. You play on the same team and you can you can set it up and take it down and save where you're at. The guy who did it, his name is Isaac Childress. He did a, a Kickstarter run that earned him almost $400,000 in income. And then when he did a second Kickstarter for the same game, he brought in millions of dollars because this game is just so hyped. Holy cow. And uh, I'm getting my copy in October, and I'm just so excited to play it. Well, Jacob, uh, we, we need to take a break. But I, out of all those games that you mentioned, I think I've heard of one, which is Stratego, which <laughs> should be good news for you because when we come back— Cole has put together a little bit of a trivia game for us revolving around board games, and there may be some movie tie-ins there. But uh, I, I will already admit, when it comes to board games, you've got me beat. But when it comes to movies, hmm, we'll have to find out. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show with Jeff Simpson. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson. I'm speaking with Jacob Gowans, who, among many other things, is an avid gamer, and uh, he owns over 400 board games. I am feeling kind of inadequate in the board game department now because I don't have that many, and I think the most obscure one I have is Ticket to Ride, which would probably make Jacob laugh. Anyway, we're going to test out some of our board game and gaming and movie knowledge right now. And Cole has put together a little trivia game for us. And uh, Cole, why don't you explain how it's going to go down? You betcha. So this is a game called Trivia Quest, which bears some similarities, I guess you could say, to a certain trivial board game. Except in this case, the winners will not get any pie. Woohoo! No, you won't get pie. Yeah, I'm still excited. Are you sure? Yeah. All right. Well, let's play for the fun of it then. In this game, there are two different categories. We have games that are featured and show up in movies and TV shows. And then we have movies that were based on games. Okay. And we're going to take turns. We have to give Jeff a little bit of a handicap as he plays. Yes. Uh, And so he'll get his own question to answer. uh, And then we'll also be able to give our honored guest his own question to answer. Let's do it. All right. Uh, Jeff, would you like to let our esteemed associate go first? That would only be proper. I think so. All right. So to start off, in the first Harry Potter movie or book, what chess piece does Ron take over for in the final chess game? 
A knight. That is correct. It is a knight. <laughs> I knew that one, but I knew for sure you would know it too. <laughs> All right, Jeff, you're next. Again, in the category of <sighs> games showing up in movies. Okay. Sounds what confident. was the name of the monster from Dungeons and Dragons that the kids <laughs> fight in Stranger Things? Oh, I didn't know that was from Dungeon, Dungeon, ah, Dungeons and Dragons. I've just been watching Stranger Things. The first edition, too. It's one of the premier monsters. I should have gone first. Um, I The only thing I know about Dungeons and Dragons is the movie had Jeremy Irons in it. Is the answer Jeremy Irons? No, the monster was not <laughs> Jeremy Irons. I bet Jacob knows. Would you like to steal Jacob? I believe it was the Demogorgon. It was oh, the Demogorgon. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. Okay. Uh, good for you. <laughs> so for those keeping track at home, it is two to nothing. Jeff is trailing. Oh, wait. He gets that point? He, oh, because he stole it. He okay. Does. He All might right. get two right. if we were going to play it the exciting way. Okay. <laughs> Let's keep it going. All right, Jacob. Would you like to stay in this category, or do you want to go with movies based on? Let's go movies based on. All right. True or false, in the movie Battleship... Liam Neeson utters the line, They sunk our battleship. Uh, I haven't seen that movie, but I will guess. I will guess false. It is false. Oh! There were a lot of 50, things wrong with that movie, and that's one of them. Could have been much oh. improved by <laughs> Liam Neeson being able to say that. Wow. Good for them, though. They in had, that movie? That line, in that, movie? that line had to be in there. It had to. But it wasn't. No one says that line. Mm. Wow. Not Rihanna, not Taylor Kitsch. Rihanna was in that movie? Rihanna was in that movie. Yeah, I'm glad I skipped it. Okay, my turn. All right, okay. Jeff, what category? Let's go about board or about games, movies about games. Okay. Which of the following Hasbro Toys or Games movies have been directed or produced by Michael Bay? Battleship, Ouija, G.I. Joe Rise of the Cobra, or Transformers? I believe the only one he did not have a hand in was Ouija. And uh, so he was involved in all the others. Final answer. That is incorrect. No! Jacob, do you have a steal? Uh, I will guess. I'll say he wasn't involved in... Uh, oh, I know now. I know what it is. Ouija or um, G.I. Joe. Also incorrect. Oh, wow. Michael Bay was the producer of the Ouija movie. Wow. Which is a little outside his wheelhouse, it seems. Yeah. But he was not anywhere near Battleship, despite all the explosions and Michael Bay read something about stuff. Nor was he in G.I. Joe. Okay. Mm. Wow. I guess we don't know our Michael Bay very well. Yeah. Okay, so that was Jacob's no that out. was Jacob's wrong answer, right? So now it's my turn. Is that what you're saying? That was your wrong answer. <laughs> and now it's back <laughs> He's to Jacob's. To steal my questions. Okay. It's still three to nothing. All right. Thank you for the reminder. Mm-hmm. Of course. Which category <laughs> would you like, Jacob? Uh let's go back to the other one that I was doing better in. You got it. What is the famous two player game that John Locke is seen playing in the beginning of the television show Lost? That would be backgammon. It is, in fact. Whoa! My goodness. There are two sides, light and dark. Yeah, and they never really go anywhere with that uh, that little clip. It seems like until I know. I guess they actually do. Season. I guess they do. Yeah. I know. I really wanted to see who won that backgammon game. <laughs> okay, 
Well, I know who's going to win this game, but just give me the next question anyway. Okay. So we'll stay in the same category then for you. Uh, what is the fictional game called that Ben Wyatt invents in the television show Parks and Recreation? <laughs> oh, it's like cones and uh, <coughs> cones and thrones, or uh, it's like uh, adventure to to Mordor or something like that. I know it has cones in it. There were cones. Jacob, would you like? I I uh, have no. I cannot remember, and I love love that show. Okay, Jacob, you can steal. Cones of Dunshire. Cones. I knew. Of so I got to get half a point at least. I knew there was cones in the title. <laughs> you can have half of a point, and Jacob Woo-hoo! will get the other half. All right. You're still losing. <laughs> okay, but that was his question, right? No. All right. Still no. See, okay. I don't think I want to play games with Jeffrey. He cheats a little bit, doesn't no, he? No, I don't cheat. I just don't know any of the right answers. Uh, okay. All right. Next, uh, back over to the movies based on games. And this is actually a movie based on a game that didn't happen, and then they made the game out of it later. Uh, in the movie Jumanji, Jacob. I knew Jumanji was going to come, come up on. Complete the line. Don't be fooled. It isn't thunder. Oh. Uh, don't be fooled. It isn't thunder. Oh. Um. Some, I don't know. Jeffrey, can you steal? Uh, don't be fooled. It isn't thunder. I come from the land down under. (laughs) That's terrible. Not quite. Staying put would be a blunder. Oh, it was on the tip of my tongue. And then the stampede comes through the bookshelf. That's right. I knew it was the stampede, but I couldn't think of the word that rhymed with thunder. Okay, that one I know was not my question. Correct. Okay. And because you allowed Jacob to go first, you get the final question. Is this it? I think this should be worth worth five points. This one's worth about five points. Okay. Give or take. Unless he gets it right, then I take that back. <laughs> right. So for this to be worth, we can have this be worth five points if you can answer it in its entirety. Okay, How about that? let's go for it. In the movie Clue, yes. who was the killer? Ah, this is a trick question. Okay. Maybe. Do you want the order? Because listen, let me give you a little history about the movie Clue. When the movie <laughs> Clue was released... The marketers of the film thought it would be a clever marketing gimmick. And we're wrong. To o- hold on. To only show one of the endings and so that uh, theater goers would have to see it multiple times to see the other endings. It was a horrible mistake. Didn't work. The movie did not uh, make a lot of money. In the, the version that people in our generation are used to, if you're going on the the one of the endings, it's Mrs. Peacock. If you're going on another ending, it's uh, Miss Scarlet. But here's what actually happened. Tim, exactly. Tim Curry, Tim Curry was the killer. However, however, every one of the characters kills at least one person, including the only one who wasn't a quote unquote killer. Mr. Green or Michael McKeon of Spinal Tap fame? Final answer. I think that's worth about five points, Woo! don't you? <laughs> Finally, you, you named a movie that I'm familiar with and I love. Wow. 
Jacob, good work. I applause all around. Mostly to Jacob, though. Wow, <laughs> that was an impressive answer. Oh my goodness. Well, Jacob, clearly you are the victor when it comes to board games and movies about board games. Well, his name is Jacob Gallons. We've had a great time with him here on Screen Cleaning. He's an avid board gamer as well as a pediatric dentist in Georgia. And we were so lucky to have him on the show. And he gave us some ideas of how we can spend our Friday and Saturday nights together Jacob, thanks again for your time. We'll have to have you back on the show and talk to you more about your literature. Thanks. That would be great. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. I can do lately when I hear this song is cry profusely. So I'm hoping that our next guests, Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation fame, can uh, can help me feel a little better about myself. Spencer and Jerem, as uh, as Ebenezer Ebenezer Scrooge said in A Christmas Carol, speak comfort to me. How many games in a row have the Dodgers lost? Five. So I, I did. I figured this out because last week I remember saying on Friday's show, "What do you think? What do you guys think of the Dodgers winning ninety games? They won one more game that Friday night and have not won a game since." So we need Jerem's reverse curse to come into work here. Only sixteen games ahead of the Diamondbacks. I know, but the Diamondbacks right. just <laughs> swept them. They swept him, and they didn't. I mean, they made him look really bad. Five runs in the first inning. Three runs in the first inning the other night. So, yeah, they humiliated all three of the Dodger starters. But I guess the silver lining is that uh, Clayton Kershaw is coming back tonight. Is that the silver lining? Yes. Hmm. Are you guys, okay. are you just furious with me that I have a team that is almost a 700 team and I'm crying over this? Yeah, I'm a, li- I'm a little uh, concerned about your expectations at this point. <laughs> Oh, I've told my dad I've I've all but given up hope that they'll make it to the World Series. So <laughs> we lost five in a row. <laughs> <sighs> you, you know, you're supposed to make me feel better. ESPN is jokingly, like mockingly, sounding the panic alarm on the Dodgers. They're like, <laughs> they've lost four in a row. What does oh, it now mean? It's five now. Yeah, I know, but come on, it's gonna be all right. Thank you. Now, can the same be said for BYU this weekend? Is it going to be all right? Yes, it's going to be all right because the expectations are for BYU to lose this game by 16 points. I'm not sure what the fans expect. What do the fans expect? I I don't have a good gauge on that because what you're saying is what Vegas expects. But I don't know what BYU fans expect. Well, you guys are not betting on this game, are you? You mentioned no, Vegas. We would, we would literally lose our jobs okay. if we bet on BYU. Like, that's against the rules because we work here. Um, I'll but, make a note of that, by the way. Yeah, yeah no so, more, Jeff. So stop doing that. Uh, but LSU is a really good team. They're really good. But they have a new offensive coordinator named Matt Canada. LSU usually just kind of stinks on offense. Um, Darius Geis is a tremendous running back. Danny Etling is an experienced quarterback, but he's not a guy that's going to break a game open. The LSU defense versus the BYU offense is probably the matchup to watch in this one. Yeah. Geis versus 
the BYU front seven. You know, there's some intriguing matchups. Do we think the BYU can score more points than they did last week? I do not. So I think the BYU wow. defense probably has to show up in this one and hold LSU to 10 points and hope that the offense gets 13 or something. Yeah, the overwhelming feeling I get from BYU football, and I spent quite a bit of time around him this week between interviews and yesterday uh, with Thursday's hero thing, is they just want to see where they stack up against LSU. They're just excited to see how they match up with a team of that caliber and of that history and go out and play loose. So if anything, that that is a, a little bit of an advantage because the pressure is not on BYU to go and, hey, you have to win this game. So is this akin to... Somebody who's unsure of themselves in high school going up to, like, the prom queen and asking her to go out with him? Sure. Just to see where he stands. Why not? Yes. <laughs> Maybe she'll say yes. Maybe she's like, wow, I actually think he's really good looking. I want to spend some time with him. Well, thank you. Or I, I take that as a compliment. Best case scenario. Or she could be like, you're an idiot. Yeah, shove him in the face. Smack him. Yeah. And he goes home crying. Yeah. Wow. That's how... The worst-case scenario is BYU doing what it did at Michigan in 2015, which is to lose 31-0, barely cross midfield, oh. and be like, oh, my goodness, we're not on the same level as those guys. I remember I what— I don't expect that to happen this Yeah, weekend. I do not. I remember what and where I was eating when that happened. Like, it, it was embarrassing. I was at it Wingers, was bad. if you're curious. Wingers, yeah. the all-you-can-eat uh, oh, yeah. uh, sticky finger lunch. Love me some Winks. <laughs> Sticky finger lunch. With a side of popcorn. Hey, wet nap. <laughs> have you had the sticky fingers lunch? It's really good. It is. That I sauce some, is amazing. I have some sticky finger sauce in my fridge as we speak. For purchase Br- now. Bring it. Bring it to work. This episode of Screen Cleaning uh, and the Crosstalk with BYU Sports Nation is brought to you by <laughs> Wingers. <laughs> Oh, goodness. So what else is coming up on the show other than anticipation for uh, BYU's football game tomorrow? We're going to discuss the secret formula. And we've asked BYU Sports Nation to help us out with this. Like what? Release the secret weapon! Yes, what things (laughs) have to happen other than scoring more points? And if you say scoring more points, Jeff, I will give you a red card. Oh, I won't say it then. Just execution-wise, what does BYU have to do to actually pull this thing off? Like what? storylines in the game have to play out. They need Rick to Bell consume his his big stats the other day, what he thinks has to go in BYU's favor, like what what do fans think has to happen for BYU to actually win this game? They've got to consume uh cougar tails. That's their spinach. That sounded exactly like the sounder for that. Way to go. <laughs> what does Popeye send? Whoa! <laughs> well, blow me down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Also, we have Dennis Pitt on the show, so um, take that for what it's worth. Those tips don't lie. <laughs> I mean, he was an All-American, and he caught a touchdown in the Super Bowl, and he is a millionaire, so, and he might want to take Jerem's job, so. Ooh. Watch out, Jerem. If he knew the salary, he would laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Comparably yeah. to his salary. Well, it, sound, it sounds like happy. a great show. We're excited. Yeah, listen. Cougars, Join, Cougars in the NFL doing some serious work, oh, too. Oh, touchdowns on wow. touchdowns last night. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We got the update. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, by the time we speak next week, the Dodgers will have another W. Reverse curse, Jerem. Reverse curse. Nope, Do- not, the Dodgers, will, win. The Dodgers will, will uh, lose five in a row again.
that means that they're going to start winning again. Thank you. That was my key for Sutherland. Thank you, by the way. The whispered. Get me a chopper. Thank you. Thank you. Where's Chloe? All right. Well, Spencer and Jeremy, you guys have a fantastic show and a fantastic weekend. Bye. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Didn't sound like they were too hopeful, but at least they made me uh, realize maybe I'm being a little too overreactive when it comes to the Dodgers. A little too much drama. Yeah. They'll be fine. Drama makes for good radio, though. You know what else makes for good radio is our panning for good segment. There's good in them dire hills. Well, our guest today, Jacob Gowans, uh, the avid gamer, gave us a few ideas for games that we could play together in a small group, a large group, uh, fast games, long games. I'm going to give you a lesser-known game that actually has amazing reviews on Amazon, and we know the creators of this game. It's a little game called Cover Your Assets. And uh, I, the the title is a little tongue-in-cheek, I realize, but uh, Cover Your Assets is a game that's basically like a mix between risk and war. Okay? So you have all these different assets, like you have baseball cards, you have cash under the mattress, then you have things that are a little more valuable, like cars or jewels, then you have the coveted home. They all have different values. And uh, then there are a couple of wild cards, such as a silver card and a gold card, also with uh, a higher value. Okay, now you pair these assets together and you alternate stacks, one on top of the other. Okay, are you with me so far? Gotcha. And what you try to do is you obviously want to have the most amount of money by the end of the game. The way you do that is by putting down your own assets or stealing other people's assets. The reason it's called cover your assets is because the first one you put down, nobody can steal. Anything on top of that is fair game. The reason it's kind of like war is because if you want to steal somebody's somebody's asset, you have to show them that you have one of those cards in your hand, and in order to defend themselves, they have to have one in their hand as well. So it's a ton of fun. It's very, I don't want to say it's addicting. It, it is, but it is a, a ton of fun. It has a 95 per, 95% of the people gave it a five-star rating on Amazon. And we're talking hundreds of reviews. So check it out. It's probably only 10 or 12 bucks. Well worth it. You'll get tons of fun out of it. And uh, that's what we do on Screen Cleaning. We try to put a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. It doesn't just have to be movies. And as we learned today, it can be board games, too. So have a good, long weekend as we celebrate Labor Day. And we'll be back again next Friday to give you the best in entertainment news here on Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show with Jeff Simpson and Cole Wissinger. We'll be back.